Well, what a special morning. Uh, so good uh, to be together in worship on this uh, not, not only dear uh, opener weekend, but, but uh, uh, praise God, Thanksgiving weekend, which is perhaps a little bit more uh, spiritual anyway, right? <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, praise God. Hey, would you turn in your copy of Scripture? John chapter 2. We're going to continue our study in John. Uh, We'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. Now, I got to tell you, next week we're going to deviate from John and we're going to have an Advent series uh, called uh, Waiting, an Advent Guide to Hope. And we're going to take selected texts and we're going to remind each other that the first Advent proves that the second Advent is worth the wait. And so I think we'll have a great study uh, together. We'll come back to John actually in about February. We've got another series, a short one we're going to do in January. And so if you've enjoy John. Don't, don't like not come back until uh, February, but, uh, but just wanted you to know we'll be deviating from, from it a little bit here in the coming weeks. Well, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm uh, here to confess something this morning, okay? And, and it's, it's a little bit uh, risky to confess this. It might surprise you a bit. See, I like to live on the edge sometimes, right? I'm a pretty edgy guy, really. Me and Kirk Cousins have a lot in common. And, and if you get that, praise God. If you don't, don't worry about it. But, but I like to push it, you know, especially in certain areas of my life. I wonder if you can guess uh, what it is. And I have to wrestle whether or not I'm going to share this with you. But, but here's the thing. I, I like to run my truck as close to empty as I can before filling it with gas, all right? That's, that's about as edgy as I get. You know, I like to, to that needle to go all the way down to E before I stop at Quick Trip. It's, not, it's a bad habit, and it's something that has been a part of my story for a long uh, time. And, and I know it's, it's super edgy, and I know you're just impressed, right? Uh, back when we were a lot younger, Christy and I were preparing to move to Iowa, and we had these two little boys, our twin boys, Connor and Carson. They were about one year old, and we had some friends uh, that though we were busy and we were packing and we were doing all these things, said, hey, we want to connect with you before uh, you go. And they were close friends, and so of course we wanted to spend time with them. And so uh, we found ourselves driving about 20 miles to go to a bowling alley in a small town near the place that we lived. And um, we were on the way, and I don't know if this happens in your car, but in our car, uh, Christy is very good at watching that, that uh, gas gauge, right? Especially given what I just told you. And so she leans over to me and she says, hey, don't you think we should stop and fill gas? And I said, honey, we were supposed to be there at such and such a time. We didn't leave time to fill gas. Let's just go. And, and it says that we've got 50 miles. There are 40 miles to get there and back again. We're going to be fine. I, and I, I'd said what no young husband should ever say to his young bride, just trust me right? (laughs) Uh, Famous last words. Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Okay? And, and so I did, and you know what happened. We, we had a good time. Uh, we were enjoying the bowling, and we spent time with our friends. By God's grace, we made it there on time. I was smug. I said, see, we would have been late. It would have been miserable, you know? Uh, but then uh, we're driving home, and totally out of the blue, totally unexpectedly, I mean, who could imagine this would happen? Uh, the car starts to sputter, and the next thing I know, we find ourselves on the side of the road with nowhere to go. Uh, the fortunate thing was Christy was totally cool with it. That's another story. I'll save that for another sermon. But, but I wonder, have you ever been there? Uh, you ever ran out of resources? You know, maybe, maybe run out of something that was important. Maybe it's money in your checking account and you've got to pay the bills. That, that happens from time to time. Uh, maybe you're a student, you run out of pencils and it's time to take the test. You know, maybe, maybe you're uh, at home and, and you're trying to get your kids off to school. And maybe you've ran out of cereal and milk and the kids are going, Mom, what am I going to eat? 
Okay, that, that happens from time to time. We run out of things that we come to depend on. And, and it reminds me of our story uh, here in the Gospel of John as we come back to that study. I, w- I want to remind you of where we've been. John is writing to the young Ephesian church in the latter part of the first century in order to remind them, hey, this is who Jesus is. Okay, uh, Don't forget, this is the identity of Jesus, and you're going to hear some funky things coming along. In fact, there are rumors of her- heresy uh, floating around the Ephesian church. John writes to clarify, this is Jesus. And in fact, he writes in John 20, verse 31, his purpose for writing the book. He says, these are, are things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay? That's why John is writing. And so after chapter 1, where, where John introduces this word made flesh, and, and after he provides his first witness, John the Baptist, and after he invites Jesus, or he demonstrates how Jesus invites his first followers, uh, remember it's John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, uh, he invites them to, to join him in his public ministry. John records these things. And, and now we get to chapter 2, and the press conference is over, and, and John the Baptist does what he said he's going to do. He slips back into uh, the background, and here Jesus is with his new buddies, right? And, and where we find him is interesting. We find him in a place that was fairly common in the first century. He, he's, he's there at a wedding, and a wedding was a big deal in the first century. He's there in Cana, close to his hometown of Nazareth. And with that, I want us to read here John chapter 2. We're going to go through 111, but for now, just through verse 3. This is what John writes. He says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Okay. Now, uh, I want you to notice uh, several things in this passage. First, notice the phrase, on the third day. This is actually, I think, significant here as John lays out his gospel because it represents a chronology in the first chapter and a half or so of John that we haven't really talked about yet, but that's been there if you've been uh, watching closely. And so if we go back to the beginning of the narrative where, where the religious leaders, remember, were sent to interrogate John the Baptist to say, who are you? Uh, we have day one. Day one is where John the Baptist um, is introduced in the text. And then on day two, uh, we have Jesus coming towards John the Baptist. And remember what John said? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? That was on day two. Now, the third day is when Jesus meets John and Andrew. We talked about that last week. And then the fourth day, remember, John and Andrew spend the night with Jesus. They're, they're getting to know him. They're being with him so that they can be sent by him. The next day, Andrew finds his brother Peter and introduces him as well to Jesus. And then on the fifth day, uh, Jesus meets Philip and Nathanael. And and though the text doesn't make this 100% clear, it it seems that on the sixth day, Jesus and his new disciples walk back up into his home region of Nazareth and Cana, which is not very far. And here we find them on the seventh day at this wedding in Cana. Now, you ask, why is this significant? Why does this matter? Well, I want you to remember John's very first words in John 1, chapter 1, or John 1, verse 1. Remember what, uh, how John introduces the book? He says, in the beginning was the Word, okay? In the beginning was the Word. And of course, that reminded us of Genesis, chapter 1, that starts very much the same way, where Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created. Both John and Moses take us to the beginning. 
And of course, in Genesis, God creates over six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests with his people in order to carry out the function of that which he has created. God designed the cosmos as a temple so that he can rest with his people and invite them to dwell with him in his presence under his provision. Well, In Genesis, God enters his rest. In John, here we have Jesus now establishing his ministry, uh, demonstrating. John lays it out over six days. This is who Jesus is. This is why he has the authority to do what he's going to do. And then on the seventh day, uh, Jesus begins the process of restoring that which has been lost. In Genesis, God enters his rest. In John, Jesus sets out to restore that rest. It's really a beautiful motif that John lays out here. And so how appropriate that on this seventh day, Jesus is preparing to do a creative work. We're going to talk about what that creative work is. Okay? Genesis, seven days. John, seven days. Genesis, God enters his rest. In John, Jesus restores that rest. He begins the process. You with me? All right. So there's the academic lesson. We'll keep moving on. All right. Now, there's a problem here that John introduces. The wedding party has run out of wine, okay? They didn't just run out of gas. They ran out of wine. And to understand the significance of a first century wedding running out of wine, we need to know just a bit about first century weddings in Palestine. See, these were long, drawn-out affairs. They could last up to seven days, and the groom and his family were expected to take care of their guests. And so when, when, a, when a wedding party came, uh, actually when a wedding party hosted a wedding and the guests came, they were expected to bring gifts, not unlike our experience today. But what was different in Palestine in the first century is that if you're hosting a wedding and the groom was responsible and his family were responsible for hosting, you were expected in sort of a transactional, almost legal way to provide something in response to those gifts. And so you were expected to have food and provision for seven days. Now, Christy went to the grocery store yesterday. We're hosting Thanksgiving at our house for the first time. Uh, that's a big bill, right? Uh, but it's, it's exciting and it's good. Can you imagine hosting a wedding feast for seven days in a row? Okay, it was a big deal for these families. And yet, if they didn't provide it, all kinds of problems would ensue. I mean, their honor was at stake. You didn't host a wedding. You didn't get married unless you could provide a wedding feast in this way for your guests. And so, given that background, the unthinkable happened. They ran out of wine. They ran out of wine at the wedding. And we don't know exactly why Jesus' mother is in the mix here. It's, it's likely that they're close family friends. Nazareth is not too far from Cana. And we talked about the difference between Spencer and Stratford last week, or, Spencer, or Stratford and Elgar, Ed, Edgar. Yeah, you get it. Um, and, and, and so uh, it, here, though you know, they may have been rival towns, you could also be friends with somebody in that community. And so that's likely the case. And, and so Cana wasn't too far from Nazareth. Mary's likely a close family friend. And here, Mary. Mary and Jesus and his disciples are at the wedding. And Mary understands the situation. She she discerns what's going on. And before it becomes very public, she knows where to turn. She turns to her son, to Jesus. Now, Many think that by this time, Joseph is out of the picture. He's not mentioned again in the Gospels, okay? And so it's likely, and many think this, that Joseph passed away and he left Mary to the care of their children, particularly to their firstborn son, Jesus. And as tragic as this may have been, uh, who, who better to take care of his widowed mother, correct? I mean, if you're going to lose your husband, uh, Jesus is a pretty good son to have to take care of you, all right? 
And so, though Jesus had not yet performed any miracles, Mary certainly would have come to view him as resourceful, as wise, as, as prepared, as, as capable. Uh, Jesus was the carpenter uh, here after all. And so, though it's clear she was, ex- she was expecting him uh, not to do a miracle, she didn't, she didn't have that in mind, she does instinctively know where to turn. And so she finds Jesus and she says, Jesus, they have no wine. This is a problem. You know what kind of problem this is. What are you going to do about it? And friends, ours is a world where God has supplied everything, everything we need to flourish. We we studied that in Genesis 1 through 11 this last summer. God created the cosmos in six days, and it was very good. And on the seventh day, God entered his rest, and he offered his presence. What more could we need? We had every resource available there in the Garden of Eden. And yet, what did we do? We as a race, as a, as a humanity, we rejected God's provision and we said, thank you very much, I'll take care of it myself. And where did that leave us? Friends, the wine vats are empty. Apart from God's remedy, here we are. We too, like the bridegroom, have no resource available in and of ourselves to restore that which was lost. The bridegroom, he's standing there at the pinnacle of his young life. He's celebrating with his community, but he lacks the necessary resources to make good on his commitment. He can't provide in the way that he needs to. It's a tragedy. And so what does Jesus do? Let's read verses 4 through 7. It says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, there's a lot going on in here, and we're going to come back to much of it. But but first, I want you to notice how Jesus ultimately responds to the need, okay? He he finds six stone water jars that were used in that household for what uh, what John describes as the Jewish rites of purification, okay? Now, we've talked about this in different ways before. Uh, the, The Jews followed ritual purity law in order to keep themselves set apart from the nations around them, in order to keep themselves in a right place with God, keep themselves free from defiling themselves so that they could be with God in his presence. And that had implications for how they washed their hands before meals, how they cleaned themselves after, say, defiling themselves with a dead body or different things like that. And it was a big deal. And if a vessel was being used for holding the water by which the Jews would have become ritually clean, it was imperative that they keep those vessels in good repair, okay? that they were well cared for. Certainly, that there was no contamination in that water, in that pure uh, water, according to their custom. And, and that, in, incidentally, is why the vessels were made of stone and not some other pottery, which would have been more common. These were important vessels in this household, and no doubt they were there for a large ceremony with people. Okay? And isn't that interesting? When Jesus hears about the lack of wine, where does he turn? <laughs> he goes right for those vessels. He goes right for those vessels. And in so doing, uh, we experience an immediate tension. There's a tension here. Hey, Jesus, don't touch those. Those are important. What are you doing with those? But he goes right for them. And on the one hand, we have the honor of the groom at stake. Okay? The groom is is needing some provision in order not to experience shame. But on the other hand, we have the honor of the ritual purity law that's represented by these vessels. And see, 
the Jewish leaders of the day, they, they loved to add requirements to the law in order to maintain control over the people. And these vessels would have been part of that, which was, was no doubt extra. And, and in that, the, the rituals were empty, just, just like the guests' wine glasses. They weren't sufficient for the day. And so Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he goes right where it counts for the Jewish leaders. He takes advantage of the situation to, to take that which is sacred to the Jews, these, these water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification, and to repurpose them for something new, to give them a different purpose, a, a new reality. And we're going to find out what that is here in a minute. But friends, first, let's, let's ask the question, what needs to be repurposed for us? What needs to be repurposed in our lives? In what ways are our wine glasses empty? <laughs> I mean, is it possible that, that some have taken on forms of Christianity but have left Christ out of the picture? To have a, a glass with no wine? I think so. And see, many, many claim to be Christian because they think that they're washing with the right jars. They're, they're using the right water. They're born into a certain family or, or they go to church or they vote a certain way on a ballot. And yet, sadly, Christ is nowhere to be found. This happens in, in people all the time and it happens in churches. Richard Phillips says, many churches with Christian names bear little more than the lifeless water of secular humanism. Having jettisoned the Bible's teaching on manners such as sin, God's judgment, the, the atoning blood of Christ, the resurrection, and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. What Mary said at this feast is true of them. They have no wine. And church, it's not true just for, for those uh, traditions that are jettisoning biblical values and contemporary, for, for contemporary ideologies. It's not true just for churches that are saying, you know, the Bible is no longer our authority. We have a different authority. It's also true for those who consider themselves uh, more conservative. See, we can easily favor a model of church that includes five steps to make our marriage better or three steps to financial security that leave Christ and his gospel completely out of the picture. And it's not that those steps are wrong. They're not. I'm grateful for steps that have helped me uh, to realize, don't say to your wife, you just have to trust me when the gas is on empty, all right? Those are helpful. But without the wine of Christ, without Christ in the middle of it, without his gospel that, 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 that outlines it, that, that, that captures it, those things, they're, they're futile. Jonathan Edwards once said, the carnal soul imagines that earthly things are excellent. One thinks riches most excellent, another has the highest esteem of honor, and to another carnal pleasure appears most excellent. But the soul cannot find contentment in any of these things. They think that if they could but obtain them, they would be happy, and when they obtain them and cannot find happiness, they look for happiness in something else and are still upon the pursuit. This is why Isaiah wrote, the wicked are like the tossing sea. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Friends, when, when we fail to accept the resources of God's provision, we find ourselves stuck on the side of the road with no recourse. We're, we're steeped in our shame. <laughs> we're lost in our inability to sufficiently right our fallen condition. We're plunged into the valleys of indifference and, and, and self-indulgence in a way that numbs our pain and insufficiencies and our inabilities to take hold of that which we really need. We're simply hanging on to water jars that may as well be empty. And so what's the solution? From where does the wine come? Let's go to the text. 
verses 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they, they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Church, the solution to running out of gas on the side of the highway isn't to reach back into the back seat and pull out those water bottles you've half used and dump them into the gas tank, all right? I haven't tried that, I promise. That's, the, that's a little much even for me. <laughs> it's not going to do you any good. The, the solution to your shame isn't to medicate it with drugs or alcohol or, or lavish vacations or expensive hobbies. The solution to your unrighteousness isn't to work harder and to beat yourself into submission and to follow a bunch of arbitrary rules that you think will make you stand out to God so that he'll favor you over somebody else. Those aren't the solution. Friend, the solution is to accept what only Jesus offers, to accept what only Jesus can do. The master of the feast, he's dumbfounded when he says to the bridegroom in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. It's mind-blowing for him. Church, the solution to the problem of having empty wine glasses is to save the best for last. Save the best for last. God says to exiled people of Israel in Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. Israel was in a bad way when Amos was writing, but, but, but God says to the people, look, I know your wine glasses are empty. Check this out. Check out what I'm going to do. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Friends, Jesus is the new wine. That which was previous was good. It it was good. Make no mistake, the law was an extension of God's grace. The law gave the people a means by which they could demonstrate their faith to God. And as good as the law was, it was insufficient. It didn't finish the job. It was incomplete. And so now, as as Jesus replaces the water for ritual purity in these stone jars with a new wine that far surpasses the first, he's demonstrating his authority as the Messiah to right not only the fallen state of Israel, (laughs) but to right the cosmos that became broken at the curse. To go back all the way to Genesis and say, you know what, that that problem that, that, that came into existence because of Adam and Eve... I got that. I got that. Here we are on the seventh day. I'm making wine out of water, and I'm going to make a new life out of you if you'll trust me. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, church. Notice verse 7. 
Notice verse 7. It says, they filled the jars to the brim. They filled them all the way to the top. I can't imagine carrying a 20 or 30 gallon stone jar with water all the way to the top that turns into wine, right? I mean, it's, it's significant. Church, when Jesus comes on the scene, there, there's no room for clinging to what was. You cannot earn your place with God. There's no room left for the ritual purity water. It's now irrelevant. There's no room left in the jars for it at all. They're filled to the brim. Church, you can't stick water in a gas tank and expect to drive. But by performing his first miracle, by, by changing water into wine, Jesus offers a sign that he's here to replace the old water with something new. And in that, he reveals his person. He reveals himself. He reveals his person. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ, the one promised in Amos chapter 9 to bring the wine, to make it flow. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting. Mary has to grapple with this. Can you imagine being Jesus' mom? Okay, some of you moms, I can't imagine being a mom first and foremost, so praise God for you moms. But, but, but here, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and she has to wrestle with this. Do you notice how Jesus responds to her in, in the early part of the, the section here in verse 4? He says, woman. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I would have called my mom woman growing up, it wouldn't have gone well for me, right? It seems kind of disrespectful, doesn't it? But it's actually not here. It's not a disrespectful term in, in, in the original language. But it is a term of distance. You wouldn't call your mom woman, okay? And we have to ask, why does Jesus address her that way? And here's why I'm convinced he does. He's creating distance for her. He's reminding her, yes, you're my mother, but I'm your Messiah. And I have a purpose I have a calling here. Luke 1, 32 to 33, he's reminding Mary of what Gabriel told her. When Gabriel approached Mary, he said, hey, you're going to give birth to a child, and I know you're a virgin, but God's going to do this. He, Gabriel said to her, he's going to be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said 30 years with Jesus. As his son, no doubt there's a deep, uh, affectionate relationship there. No doubt, if, if what's, what I said earlier is true, that Joseph has passed away, she's come to depend on Jesus to supply for their family. It's quite the transition here. But Jesus is saying, look, Mary, Mom, I love you, but I have a new role to play. I'm demonstrating who I am here in this. And you're going to have to get used to it. <laughs> and Glory be to God. I think Mary does. She struggles with it. We see her struggling with it throughout the Gospels. But, but, but ultimately, I'm convinced that Mary came to faith in her son, not as her son, but as her Savior. And so, we, we see in this best for last solution, we see the person of Christ. But, but not only that. Look, look what else happens here in response to Mary's request. Look at verse 4 one more time. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus says, listen, I'm the Messiah. And yet my hour has not yet come. I have a purpose. I have a purpose. By saying my hour has not yet come, Jesus reveals his purpose. John is going to use this language throughout his gospel about the hour of Christ's crucifixion. 
It's a reference to, to Calvary when Christ will finish the work. Back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the, the, the serpent would bruise the heel of the one to come. Uh, the, son of, the son of Adam would crush the head of the serpent. It's this hour where that comes to fulfillment at the cross at Calvary. And so Jesus reveals, yes, I have a purpose, but it's not immediately. And in that, he's saying, look, that's to come, and yet... I'm starting. I'm starting to move that direction. He's coming to, to, to bring that hour into fruition. Hence, he performs the miracle, and hence his public ministry begins. And church, I love what this text reveals. I think it's powerful. What Christ came to accomplish, Christ's purpose, is, is several things. First, he came to restore honor from shame. He came to restore honor from shame. Isn't it amazing that Jesus would enter into something so, so pedestrian, so mundane, in my mind. I mean, I guess weddings are never pedestrian and mundane, sorry. Uh, but uh, but, but, but it's, it's an everyday thing. And here, this unassuming groom, he, he's, he's kind of back in the background. He's having fun with his friends. He doesn't even realize the wine's run out. I think that's the indication here. And yet, what does Jesus do? So mercifully, so kindly, he protects him from great shame that would be heaped on him and on his young family. Friends, that's who our Messiah is. He doesn't just care about your eternal salvation, although he does. He also cares about you in the here and now. We celebrated the life of a man yesterday that was committed to that, that was committed to, to, to being a part of supplying bread to people in need. How beautiful it was. Jesus delights in restoring honor from shame. That's who he is. And church, because he's made himself available to you, you can be set free. You can be set free from, from the shame of your lack of resources, if that's your, your story. From the shame of your ugly decisions. We've all made them like letting the gas run down to E, right? The, the, the shame of your inadequate parenting. The shame of the neglect of your spouse. The shame of the broken family into which you were born. The shame of whatever keeps you from accepting the love of Jesus Christ. He's bringing new wine, friends. Stop worrying about what you lack. Let Jesus cover your need. Let him replace your shame with honor. That was what he came to do, friends, and he delights in doing it. But not only that. See, Jesus also purposes to extend freedom from legalism, from having to earn our place with God. He comes to extend freedom from that. The water jars for the Jewish rites of purification are no longer necessary. See, it's not about performing a ritual. It's about putting your faith in the one who provides, in the one who creates. Friends, how many of us are running around, beating ourselves up, trying to, to follow a bunch of arbitrary rules, trying to check the boxes so that, that we think are going to earn us favor with God, and we end up exhausted? And we think, you know, if I can just impress God enough, if I can just stand out from the crowd well enough, that maybe somehow he'll let me into heaven. Church, I'm convinced that Mary never dreamed of a miracle when she first approached her son. She was looking for a human solution, and yet what Jesus provided was beyond her wildest expectation. Church, Jesus comes to fix what we can't fix ourselves. God sets the mark. We miss the mark. Jesus hits the mark. And all he asks is that we stand with him in repentance and faith. 
and what he accomplished at the cross. The rites of purification are no longer necessary because now we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't skimp. He's not miserly. He fills the jars to the brim. There's plenty to go around. You don't have to go back to your shame and your guilt and your fear and your legalism. You don't have to go back there, church. In fact, there's no more room for that. Drink from the wine that he alone provides. And church, I, I love Mary's response here. I think it's commendable. <laughs> this is just one of the indicators why I think she got it. This text doesn't, doesn't demonstrate Mary as a, a mediatrix, as, as one that some traditions claim is necessary to go to so that we can uh, have Jesus hear our prayers. It's just really not defensible from this text, though some try. But even so, Mary is commendable. <laughs> There aren't many moms that can hear their son say, woman, <laughs> and turn a corner so quickly, right? She gets it. And she says to the servant, she says, do whatever that guy tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It'll be good for you if you do. Friends, Mary moved from seeking a human solution to finding a divine one. And the disciples, they watch it happen. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. <laughs> you say, wait, I thought the disciples didn't believe in him till late, much later on in his ministry. No, they, they believed. They just struggled. They struggled. But here, they see the glory of Christ. They see the miracle. They see what Jesus is doing. And they say, okay, I'll do what that guy tells me to do. Church, on, on that cold night when Christy and I were, were stranded on the interstate, we didn't have a cell phone. We didn't own one yet. I think they were available back then, but they were expensive and we were poor. <laughs> and it was too far to walk to any gas station. We were miles away. And so we did the only thing that we could do. And fortunately, in uh, northern Minnesota, North Dakota, it was safe enough to do this. We put our trust in somebody else. And so we, we, we stood on the side of the road. I stood on the side of the road. Christy was in the van having some sort of emotion. I don't know what it was. And I, <laughs> and I flagged somebody down and, and we got some help. We had to put our trust in somebody else to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Church, John has written these things so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. <laughs> I wonder, are you like the bridegroom this morning? Are you just going through life? Are you, are you, are you just having fun? And, and you're, you're just doing your thing and you're excited about what's to come, but you're oblivious to the problem? The wine has run out. Friends, be aware. When everything crashes, and it will, when you hit the bottom and your honor is replaced with shame and you can't believe how low it could get, remember this. It's only Christ that can restore your honor. But you have to do what he tells you. You have to believe. <laughs> and friends, are you, maybe you're, you're not the bridegroom. Maybe you're like one of the religious leaders here this morning. 
You know, you're still following the old code. You're still trying, trying to make your own standing with God. Friends, I'm here to tell you, only Christ can save you. You can't earn your way into favor with God. You can simply say, God, uncle, I'm sorry. I repent of my sin. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to accept what you alone have provided for me at the cross. I believe in you. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you died for my sin and that you rose again. Lord, save me. Pick me up. Get me a gas can. Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Are you still trying to earn your place with God or are you going to do what he tells you? Or are you going to receive him as your Lord and Savior? Friends, be like Mary this morning. You may come with different expectations, but let Jesus reshape your expectations. Be like the disciples. See the glory of Christ and believe. Read the signs. Behold the manifest glory. And you too can be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious miracle. (laughs) I love, Lord, how you inspired these gospel writers to demonstrate your glory and your power and your goodness in such beautiful ways. And Lord, I thank you that though we come up empty every time, every time we try to fill our own wine glasses, God, we, we just can't do it. We can't sustain it. We can't, we can't go the long haul in any sort of a way that matters. But Jesus, you're so capable. And so you take those, those jars and you, you fill them up with water and all of a sudden there's wine. Jesus, it's all about you. You're the Messiah. You're the the glorious one. And if there's anybody here that's still trying to to, to numb their pain with, with any pursuit other than you, I pray that they would submit to your provision and that they would receive the honor that you desire to bestow on them. If there's anybody that's still here trying to earn their place with you, I pray they'd come to the end of themselves and realize You're there waiting with open arms. They need but step into your presence and receive what you have for them. We love you, God, and we trust you with all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, it's a beautiful prayer. Jesus, I'm empty. Fill my glass in only the way that you can. Church, go this morning in grace. Go in peace. Go in the knowledge that the Lord loves you so much. And go remembering that it's your privilege and responsibility, as it is mine, to represent Jesus to a dying world. God bless you, friends. Lord willing, we'll see you again soon.